Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Come and knock on our door, come and knock on our door, we've been waiting for you, we've been waiting for you, where the kisses are hers and hers and his, three's company too. Unfortunately, or fortunately this week, it's not three's company as we trek through the month of June, or as I trek through the month of June without my regular co-host Roger, because as we all know by now, he is off filming his sophomore film meet so far everything looks like it's going great so again we are definitely keeping him in our thoughts we can't wait for him to get back to the podcast but as you know it also means that i can bring on some special guests to talk horror films with me and this is kind of funny because you are chris the third chris in a row (laughs) you're the last of my trifectas of chris's i don't know how that worked out but but it worked out. So um, yeah. So this week I have a, a fabulous uh, fabulous guest, a, a an author, uh, and I'm going to let you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, uh, get them familiar with you. But this week we welcome again our third Chris of the month, Chris Schamberger. Chris, welcome to Dark Night of the Podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you for for taking the time to come on. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. I listen to this all the time. So to actually be a guest on this is amazing. Well, we appreciate you listening. You know, if you can put up with us rambling for hours on end each week, we definitely (laughs) have to give you credit and credit is having you come on the show. But um, why don't you take a minute here to uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, how you got interested in horror, just, just basics, just to get them familiar with yourself. Sure, and I'll try not to get too long-winded here. Uh, My name is Chris. Um, I'm an author. I write under the pen name C.S. James. I write a spooky middle-grade series called Twisted Books to Leave You Shook, which is kind of a nod to the anthology stories that I grew up reading, like Goosebumps, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Bone Chillers, things like that. As far as my interest in horror, I actually became interested pretty early, uh, maybe when I was six or seven, when Scream first came out. Uh, that pretty much solidified my interest in the genre. And before that, again, uh, anthology series like Goosebumps, um, Are You Afraid of the Dark on Nickelodeon, uh, things like that just really triggered that obsession. And I've been hooked ever since. Awesome. Yeah. So your your book series, I have read them and they are great. They definitely are very reminiscent of the, the Goosebumps, the R.L. Stein stuff. And I know that's what you're going for. And you definitely succeeded. They're there. Th- there's three of them, right? Fright Filter. Uh, what's what are the other two? So there's Fright Filter, Toy Horror Story, and Bad Luck Shriek. And uh, in the same tradition as Goosebumps, they can be read in any order. And I did that because I wanted to kind of create stories for everybody. So even though you might not like one story, you might like the next one, and you don't have to feel 
fully committed to it if you don't want to read all of them. Awesome. And as I, I got to say, as an English teacher, middle school, high school English teacher, and now a middle school, high school librarian, what I've been doing for the last nine years is I've been a librarian at a middle school and high school. Um, currently, I'm at a middle school. I got to say, I love the fact that you are you specifically, but anybody that that chooses to write horror genre books for young readers, because to be honest with you, it's really, really hard to find uh, good quality horror books to put in a library for kids to check out. And it's interesting because I guarantee you, and it's, it's the same every school that I've been at, you know, when kids come into the library and they ask for a specific genre, you know, because most of the libraries I've been in are still Dewey Decimal. So the the fiction books are on the shelves by author's last name. So they can't really go and go to a specific section, but they will come in and they will ask, Hey, where is the blank section? And it almost always 99% of the time they're asking where the horror section is or where the scary section is or where the mystery section is. And so it's, it's, very awesome for you to fill that niche because it is it is a void that I think has been left since the Goosebumps series in the 90s, 80s, and all that. There there needs to be more of that. So it's awesome that you're doing that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And you're right. Um, writing for middle grade uh, kids is very challenging, um, but it's a challenge that I really enjoy. Uh, I like having to get creative with my scares, you know, when you write uh, fiction for adults, it's very easy just to go into the tropes of blood and gore and violence and things like that. But when you're writing for kids, you don't really get to go that far with it. So you have to come up with other scenarios uh, to frighten your your audience, and that's a, a challenge I really enjoy. Yeah. So are you um, are you continuing in the series, or what? Or what are you are you working on something else in the future, in the near future, or what's your what's your plan for your for your writing? So I started writing middle grade fiction, and um, it's it's been really rewarding. Uh, I feel like I've gotten everything out of it that I'm going to get for the time being. So for now, I'm kind of putting that on pause. And I think going forward, I want to focus more on adult fiction. I kind of look as writing middle grade fiction as training wheels for doing the big time stuff. <laughs> so it kind of gave me the experience and the know-how of what to do going forward. So yeah, I, I think I want to start branching out into more adult horror and, and getting my feet wet. With and that. anthology seemed to be your thing, right? So would it, would it be like maybe an, an adult anthology horror novel? Okay. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, definitely short story fiction. I thrive off of short stories. I just think even Stephen King, I think his best stuff is in his short stories. Oh, I absolutely so, agree. One of my favorite Stephen King novels is one of his short story collections, Night Shift. Yeah, it's one of the best. Yeah, absolutely. It really, it really is. So um, yeah. So anthologies, it makes sense then that we are discussing the, the film that we are discussing today. And I know when I told you to, to, to throw out some suggestions, you said specifically, hey, I want to do an anthology, but I want to do one that's not as well known as something like a creep show or uh, a trick or treat or what we just covered on our Patreon cat's eye, even though that's a little bit under the radar. You wanted to do something that was a little obscure. And when you threw out a few titles, I saw this one and it just stuck out to me because I remember seeing it for the first time all those years ago. And I didn't remember a lot about the, the actual stories, but I did remember John Ritter, <laughs> uh, which 
I, I paid some some sweet tribute to John Ritter in my opening little serenade there with the three companies, uh, a theme song that I thought was fitting. Uh, but you know, so I, I I was like that that one right there because I remember seeing it paired on the DVD with Cherry Falls. You know, Cherry Falls, great underrated slasher. We covered it several episodes ago. So I wanted to revisit this one. So specifically, I know you because you you chose this one. You had like two others on your list as well. But specifically, like what about this film made you want to, to to discuss it for an hour, hour and a half? Well, like you said, I definitely like to bring attention to some of the lesser known films within the genre. Um, I can probably type in Creep Show into Spotify and find at least three or four episodes of different podcasts talking about that movie. And so I feel like with uh, this movie in particular and a few other suggestions that I threw out, you're not going to find that. You're not going to find people that talk about this movie, let alone even know about it. And I feel like because this is one of the more recent, and I say that with this movie being 23 years old, but one of the more recent modern anthologies, a lot of people just don't know about it or it's just, it's not in the pop culture eye the way some of these others are. And that's really a shame because this is a great, great underrated movie. And I'd love to bring more attention we're gonna, to it. We're going to do so because I actually agree with you. It, it, it's a lot of fun. And yeah, the segments actually are very, very well constructed. I, I like the fact that they are so uniquely different from each other. But we will definitely get there to discuss each of the segments. But we are talking about the, yeah, the 2000 film anthology Terror Track. Again, probably best known for starring John Ritter. Uh, I think that was the big selling point with the film. And, you know, he's he's great in it. It's great to see him go outside his typical typecasting and do something a little bit more, I don't know, just let him have a little bit more fun. Let his hair down a little bit and, and just really go places that he rarely gets to go doing strict comedy as his thing. So definitely a welcome addition. He he comes in, he does what he's supposed to do and just makes the film just gives kind of um just that much more of polish to to the film. But there's also other actors that pop up in the film that I'm like, "Oh my god, I did not realize that this person was in this. But guys, if you haven't seen Terror Track, yeah, it's it's obscure. I don't know how readily available it is now. I remember, like I said, I remember it used to be on the like a double DVD with Cherry Falls. Uh, I don't know if you can still get it or not, but I'm sure if you do some sleuthing around and you've never seen this film, you'll be able to find it online to check out. Shall we shall we get into the film? Are you are you itching to, to discuss all the goodness that is Terror Track? Oh, I'm itching. I'm scratching. All right. Well, here we go, guys. Terror Track 2000. Again, if you haven't seen it, seek it out because uh, it is definitely worth a watch for sure. And uh, I will add, it is actually on YouTube for free, which is interesting, too, because I played it just to see what the quality looked like, and it's pretty good. But when the title comes up, the title calls it House on Terror Track, which I've never even heard of that title. And it's kind of stupid in hindsight because it's not about a singular house. It's about an entire neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The YouTube version I did check out. The quality is fine. It's fine. It's if Yeah. I mean, if you guys, if you want to watch the film, that's the easiest way to do it. Just type it in Terror Track full movie. It's going to pop up on YouTube. It's been there for like eight years. So obviously there's not going to be any copyright claim against it. So it's there. You can check it out there. But yeah, it is. The, I did notice that the house on Terror Track and I went to IMDb to see if like that was the original 
title, but it doesn't really say anything. So, and it's it's multiple houses, right? So that title specifically doesn't make sense. Like, what specific? If you're calling this the house on Terror Trek, which specific house are you talking about? Because they they see several, um, and that is the that's the premise of the the film is you get this young newlywed couple who are in the market for a house, and John Ritter is their real estate agent, and he is showing them specific houses in this neighborhood and each house has a history to it something that happened there that is sinister honestly great great setup for an anthology film it's perfect actually you know one of the first things uh we talked about when we first um became friends is this is when the halloween reboot trilogy was happening and i remember we were having a discussion about it and I think I was mentioning to you at the time, like I'm a little disappointed that they're kind of following the same uh, path as the original series. You know, it's still about Michael Myers and the Jamie Lee Curtis character and everything. I was like, why don't they just go back and just make it about Haddonfield, you know, the whole town in general. And you could have all of these different stories from different subgenres, which I believe is what John Carpenter intended that series to be in the first place. He wanted each movie to be its own standalone Halloween story. And so I feel like in a way, this is kind of the the idea of what John Carpenter wanted, but in its own scenario. It's this real estate agent just showing off each house, and each house just has this really morbid history that he shares with the couple, and it just gets progressively more <laughs> out of whack and crazy. So yeah, I really yeah, appreciate no, it. It's, like I said, it's a great setup. Um, it definitely gives the audience uh, just a wide array of different scenarios that are going to be put forth. And uh, again, I, I, I appreciate the fact that each segment is so different than the other one and there's three plus the wraparound segment you know some anthologies you know it's a hard balance when you're doing an anthology film because you really have to balance out like the time how long do you make the segments do you go super short so you can fit more into the anthology film do you do stretch them out a little bit longer so you have more fleshed out segments but less of them you know and you can argue which is which is better because like there was that, uh, did you ever see, uh, a- a- the ABCs of death? Yes, I did. Yeah. So, okay. Anthology film, right? It's all tied together with the letter of an alphabet. Each filmmaker was given a different letter of the alphabet they had to create, but you're only given like two or three minutes to do it. And, and the result is 26 segments and probably over 70% of them in each of the films. Cause there's one and two are forgettable. You, you look at on the flip side, you look at something like creep show that gives the segments a little bit more time to develop and a little bit more time to breathe. And I think you definitely get more memorable, more memorable segments. And I think this one made the decision, the smart decision to make these segments a little bit longer, really explore the characters, but, but they never like outwore their welcome. Does that make sense? Like none of them seem like they're too long or too short. They end at just about the right time that you would expect them to end or that you want them to end as a viewer. So I do think that that's, that's something that this particular anthology film does extremely well that others have struggled to do. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think three is the magic number I've learned with anthology films. I've learned like... You know, even the original Creep Show, I love that movie, but it does kind of become a little long-winded uh, towards the end, especially when you get to the crate. That's a very long segment, so it's kind of surprising that you still have four additional stories on top of watching a mini movie almost. 
And the problem too is even though let's say, you know, you got three really amazing stories, sometimes the movies struggle with the wraparound. The wraparound either doesn't make sense or it's not very connecting and it just it just feels like an afterthought. And I think this movie in particular really masters that because this has one of the best wraparound stories of any anthology film ever made. And it just helps that the stories that are being told are just as simple. Good. The wraparound story in this is simple, so simple. Um, I'm surprised it wasn't thought of way before this particular film because it's just a simple premise. And the film opens up with a pretty cool shot. Um, there's a zoom shot of a lawn and it just kind of fast zooms in on a bird that's eating a worm. And it kind of, you think, okay, this is kind of sweet. You know, you're seeing this little birdie have its morning breakfast, but then it gets pretty dark real quick. And you, you kind of know right away what type of a film you're in for. Although I think the, the, the one issue I have, and I'll get to it when we get to the end as well, is sometimes I I don't feel like the wraparound film or the wraparound segment tonally maybe fits the other three. And I'll discuss that as we get to the end. But like right away, this bird is eating this worm. This cat comes out onto the lawn and starts to chase the bird and actually gets the bird and is like tearing it apart. And this woman comes out with her broom and shoes the cat away. The cat runs into the middle of the street, immediately gets run over by a car driven by John Ritter with his two newlywed homeowners or home shoppers in the back seat. And the wife's like, oh, what was that? He looks in the rearview mirror and we see now that this dog has run out on the street and is like ripping this poor cat to shreds. It's, I mean, it's, this is like the first 30 seconds of the film. <laughs> it's Looney Tunes. And if you have any uh, quarrels with animals being harmed in a movie, this is probably not the movie for you. Cause this is just the first instance. It gets progressively. Worse. Oh yeah. An- animal deaths um, are definitely not shied away from in this. Well, I will say, th- you know, the animal deaths are, very tongue in cheek. I would say the the majority of them. There's only one that I think is pretty heavy hitting and difficult to watch, but all the other ones are kind of played with like a wink wink nudge nudge attitude. So it's like, okay, we get it. It's not like, you know, it's not very impactful in a very upsetting way. It's more of just like, all right, I kind of get the idea. This isn't taking itself completely seriously. Uh, it is very tongue in cheek. We get the real estate agent. He takes the clients to look at their first house. And there it's mentioned several times by the husband that, oh my gosh, you must be doing really well as a real estate agent because you have a nice car and everything. And look at that watch. And John Ritter's character reveals that, yeah, his company has an incentive where if you do well, you're guaranteed to make $5 million in your first year. And even his license plate, it says five mil. Hey, Bring in that money. Uh, so he takes him to the first house. It's 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 a beautiful house. It's large. It's castle-like. It really reminded me sort of of like the, the house in American Horror Story, Murder House, kind of that vibe to it, that castle-like vibe to it. Um, they go in and they, they notice that there's still like stuff like in the house, like picture stuff on the mantle. So the husband's like, hey, did the did the sellers move already or what? And John Ritter's response is, well, no, they actually died in this very house. And then he launches into what becomes the the first segment of this anthology. And he does so because of full disclosure, which comes up several times. Like, I have to tell you this story. I, I don't want to tell it to you, but I have to tell you this story. But he's he's really eager to tell these people these, these stories, though, <laughs> until he realizes by the third segment that it's 
actually not helping his cause any. And then he's like really reluctant, but he launches into this one pretty dang quickly. And he's, he's eager to tell the story. And it's a, it's a classic, like revenge lover, scorn lover story. And it's about a couple, Lewis and Sarah Fremont, uh, and they're married and Lewis is going away on a business trip. And as he's getting ready, we get this ominous moment where we see a POV of someone watching the house as Lewis leaves. And then Sarah goes up to her bedroom. She's, she's undressing and we see someone is coming into the house and it's, it's very ominous. They come up behind her, grab her and then twirl around and kiss her. And it is her lover, the man she's having an affair with Frank. And they immediately start making out pretty, pretty heavily. (laughs) Oh yeah, she's on the bed moaning, like just all into it. And I don't even think he's done anything to her yet. Like he's maybe like lifted her shirt a little bit and she is full full on orgasm. I know. It was making me uncomfortable. It goes on it goes on a while. She is moaning and yeah, and I'm like, what are you doing to her? Like it looks it looks like you're just like kissing her stomach. I don't is he supposed to be like performing oral sex on her? I don't know. There's no nudity, but it, the the moaning does get a little Yeah, it's it would be uncomfortable if you were like watching this with your mother. Just put it that way. <laughs> Which is the first time I saw this movie. I was maybe like twelve watching this with my mom, and I was like, "Okay, we can uh, we can move past this." Yeah, but as they're as they're going at it, guess who comes up the stairs with a shotgun? <laughs> it is Lewis. He did not indeed go to on a business trip, and in fact, he knows that these two have been having an affair for a while. So he holds him, tells Frank to get off her, puts a shotgun to him, throws this note to Sarah to have her copy it. And he forces her to copy. He's like, if you don't copy this, I'll blow his head off right now. So she's forced to copy this note, which we assume is her suicide note, right? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. And then he has this elaborate plan. So this guy has really been thinking about like killing his wife for a while because he has, he has all of the kinks figured out. He's, he's going to, he throws a rope over the, uh, the rafter above them and it's a noose and he's going to make her get in it and hang herself. Then he even gives Frank the note so that Frank will have the note in his hand when he's shot and tells Frank to walk away towards the door so that when, when you're shot, it's going to look like he was trying to run away. She shoots him and then she hangs herself. It's all very elaborate. And he, I was, I gotta say, I was surprised at how this played out because he literally wastes no time kicking the chair out from under this poor woman, uh, hanging her as she's kicking and squealing and flapping back and forth. I'm like, Oh my God. Cause I didn't think it was going to happen that quick. <laughs> Yeah, it gets right to the point. And that's one thing I actually really love about opening with this story in particular is because if you go to the next two stories, not to, you know, jump ship or anything, but the other two stories kind of take their time a little bit. It's uh, not as quick to get to the action. So I think it was very smart of them to start with this story first because it wastes no time, gets right to the meat of it and kind of pulls you in regardless of the quality of what you think overall. It's very hooking immediately. Yeah, I mean you are yeah, you're wasting no time getting to the to the sinister shit that is taking place in this film. You know, she's literally like hanging in midair kicking and all Frank can do is like watch until he gets a moment where he's able to see a way that he can 
overcome this situation and he grabs the carpet and yanks it out from under Lewis's feet, which I thought was very smart, causing Lewis to fall. Uh, they scuffle for a minute and Frank is able to get scissors off of a desk and, and stab Lewis in the back with them. And he immediately goes and cuts Sarah down before she dies because she's choking to death. Uh, and he comforts her and then Lewis gets up and hits him with the gun. And goes to shoot Frank and Sarah stabs him again in the back with the scissors. And there's this moment where he pulls him out of his back and he gets on top of Sarah and is like choking the shit out of her. And it gets pretty violent. I mean, the whole, this whole segment's violent, but he is like literally choking the shit out of her. And just as you think, maybe he has the upper hand. He is shot from behind by Frank. And I want to go back for a second and say the the strangulation, both uh, Lewis strangling his wife and uh, Sarah being hung from that that rope. The foley work is so good in these scenes. Like I know you're not really seeing her hanging like in full view, but just the shot of that cord around her neck and her face looking very pink and and purple with that Foley work, it's really well done. And I think that's why this movie is pretty effective. I I think the sound effects for everything that's happening, even when you're not actually seeing it, it implies it so strongly that you do feel impacted by it. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's uncomfortable to watch. And yeah, a lot of it is the, the sound, the, the, her, her squeals, like the sound of the rope as it's like creaking against the rafters as she's swinging back forth, kind of flailing. It's all very meticulously done. and, And you can tell that, a lot of craftsmanship went into, into this film, um, which I appreciate because again, uh, a lot of anthology films or a lot of anthology films that have come out and probably since this film have not been, I think as successful as a a polished final product. There's no, like, I don't know, like consistency and quality throughout the, the segments. And I feel like this one is the exception because you do have like, I think it had this has two directors who were responsible for for doing the the, the entire film and they, they they directed each of the segments and whatnot. So you're not worrying about like quality being different from each segment to the next, having a different filmmaker behind it, which a lot of these anthologies, I don't know if you've if you've noticed recently, it's like, oh, you have a producer and all he's gonna hire some indie filmmakers or just filmmakers in general and be like, okay, you film a segment for my, for my anthology. So the result is you're getting, there's no, like again, there's no consistency in in the quality of the segments you're getting. And I've seen that quite a bit here lately because there have been some indie uh, anthologies on the scene that have, that have done that. Some of them have been good, but some of them not so well. So I appreciate the fact that this one remains solid throughout all the segments. And in fact, I think it kind of builds to the final segment being the best of the three in terms of, of quality and, and, and tone and everything like that. Yeah, I agree for sure. And and you're right. This is a good collaboration. That's really what it is. You know, when you watch some other anthology films, you can tell it's not a collaboration. It's somebody going off and doing their own thing for their episode. And then, hey, here it is. Do what you want with it. Whereas this, everything feels very intentional and it works. Sarah, of course, wants to call the police, but Frank convinces her they have to get rid of the body and make it look like he disappeared because, you know, she's going to be the the rich widow. He was shot from behind. It's just going to look like she killed him. So the better at, we'll just make him disappear. So he literally drives to a, a lake, uh, canoes to the middle of the lake and dumps the body in, b- tying it down with, with bricks. 
And can I just say, this whole hiding the body subplot, it's not even like a discussion. Like, she makes one little comment of, like, I think we should call the police. He already has, like, the plan in motion, the blueprints. Like, I mean, he's just ready to go to that lake and dump this body. I mean, the the amount of supplies it takes for this to happen, and he's able to do this within, like, no time at all. He's got the boat, the oars, the cinder blocks, the rope, the trash bags. I mean, he's just got all this stuff ready to go. And it's like, I feel like this is a little bit premeditated on your end, dude. It is. It totally is because they could have called the police and and explained the situation. The police would have known. I mean, well, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it's an incompetent police department that wouldn't have been able to investigate thoroughly. But like, check the rope for fingerprints. Who put it up there? You know, that sort of thing. And if you watch enough movies, you know, you you under you realize hiding a body never (laughs) is the answer. Always call the fucking police. Every movie where people have kill, accidentally killed somebody and they want to call they they want to hide the body instead of calling the police it never works out. Hello, I know what you did last summer, Helen Shiver, she would still be fucking alive today if they would have called the police. You know, it's funny though. This is the only story where the police are not called. Like I think they're called in each subsequent uh episode, right? And in this one they don't call them, but in the other ones they do and the police are worthless. Like, just fucking worthless. And what's so funny about that is the wraparound story, once you find out more about this neighborhood and what's really going on, it's like, no wonder nobody's calling the police. This place is fucked. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's, I don't know. But we get the, that night, we get kind of the first of several dream sequences where Sarah is awoken, quote unquote, and she goes out to the window and looks outside and the gate is open and it's creaking and we see some wet footprints that are leading from the outside sidewalk up to the porch, which I think is really cool, really cool, really creepy. She hears like footsteps outside the bedroom door and she opens it. And it is Frank who grabs her violently by the throat. But again, it's just a dream. She wakes up screaming. And I got to say this actress is pretty, pretty strong overall. She's pretty great at portraying um, fear uh, particularly in these moments where she is waking up from from these horrific dreams, you're really, I really, really buy that she is scared shitless. Yeah, she's definitely effective, and I think it's also uh, important to note that given the story itself, you know, these are two people having an affair essentially, but you don't really hate them. Like they don't come across as like extremely unlikable, or you want to see them die or anything. They're actually, for the most part, pretty likable. There's nothing like crazy, you know. Uh, effective about them but for this it it works yeah you're right because i don't like i'm not like throughout the whole film or throughout this whole segment it's not like i'm like oh you two deserve to die or whatever no because you feel like i I think from the glimpse the the small glimpse that you get of lewis the husband you can tell that he's a total asshole yeah definitely controlling you know wants things his way very totalitarian kind of aspect to him yeah and you feel like you know Sarah and Frank have true like passion for each other, true feelings for each other. So even though they're pretty, I don't want to say one dimensional, but there's not a lot of, of character development to these two. Yeah, you're right. You, you care about them. You, you don't want to see anything bad happen to them. You know that she definitely feels like they, they made the wrong decision. You can tell throughout the segment that she really regrets the fact that they just dumped the body and did not call the police and it's eating away at her, which is kind of leading to what happens by the end of the segment. 
we get this moment then after in the morning when a police officer shows up at the door and Frank looks down and he's like, oh my God, there's a cop out there. And Sarah looks and she's like, oh, well, that's just Clay. That's Lewis's fishing buddy. So they go downstairs, answer the door, and Clay's like, hey, where's Lewis? Sarah's like, uh, well, he went away on a business trip. And Clay's like, well, that's kind of funny because we had a fishing trip planned. And she, I'm sorry, this woman <laughs> could not be acting more suspicious if she tried. <laughs> not to mention the fact that they were literally standing up up in the window, curtain wide open, both of them standing up there looking down at the guy. He looks up and sees them. Like there's this moment where he looks up and she quickly uh, closes the curtain. I mean, bless her heart. She's not the most. Uh, she was not meant to be a, a mastermind criminal because she cannot play it straight at all. Well, neither <laughs> is her lover. I mean, her lover is stupid enough to be looking out the window too. And I'm like, dude, that's not your house. Like you need to like <laughs> pull it back a little well, yeah, bit. And, and uh, Clay, the friend's like, well, you better have Lewis call me when he gets back in. I want to know about this fishing trip. And even she says, she's like, uh, yeah, I think he saw you in the window. Can we talk about this fishing trip scenario for a second? Because I'm really confused on what Lewis's alibi was supposed to be. Had his plan originally worked and it looks like his wife hung herself and, you know, shot the the lover or whatever. If that had all gone according to plan, what the fuck was Lewis's alibi going to be? Because he's literally telling one person he has a business trip. He's telling another person he's going fishing. Like somebody at some point is going to be like, dude, what were you doing? Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. He, he well, he meticulously plans out like how he's gonna kill his wife and her lover and make it look like she did it. It was like a suicide murder. Yeah, he's not really um, that meticulous when it comes to like other details because he's in the house. He's like touching everything. Like he's he's touching the note. He threw the rope up there. His fingerprints are over. Yeah, he's telling one person he's here. He's telling the other. He's telling this cop. For, I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. He, I don't know how, how he thought he was going to get away with it, which is, again, why I think all she had to do was call the police and be like, yeah, my husband just tried to fucking kill me, and so we had to shoot him. <laughs> so let this be a lesson to everybody. If you kill somebody, call the police. Yeah, especially if they were trying to hang you. I mean, don't you think that the the uh, a, a good medical examiner would have come and like looked at Sarah's neck and been like, yeah, she was hanging from a rope for a while. <laughs> you know, he, I mean, it wouldn't have been that hard to prove that he was really trying to kill them. Exactly. Worst case scenario, your affair is exposed. Big deal. I mean, you're still killing somebody in self-defense here. Um, So there's this little moment where she talks about like, oh, I can't believe that this really happened. It all seems like a dream. Like, I don't know. It dreams. It's like it never happened. And, and Frank's like, yeah. That's what we got to do. We got to make it look like it never happened. And then when it when it blows over, when this all blows over, we're going to get out of here. I don't know how. So they they just expect that, A, people are going to believe that the husband just up and vanished. Um, and then they're going to run away together in a few weeks after people supposedly forget that the husband is missing. I, again, none of these people are really thinking through the the entirety of their plan, particularly like these two idiots realize that uh, they did not hide Lewis's car that it's and she told Clay that he took his car, his own car to the business trip. But yet the car is still parked out on the street. Yeah, it's like parked around the corner or something like that, which is so stupid because like 
when you just leave the car, because now by touching it and getting in it and trying to move it, you're being seen driving it around the town. Your fingerprints are now all over it. Like, even if you do dispose it, if it does get found, you're dead. Like, you're busted now. Yeah, they could have just left the car there. That The car being parked around the corner would not have any like bearing on whether police thought that she had something to do with it or not. Who knows? Um, but that night, she uh, wakes up again to the front door opening. She hears it creaking, and she gets out of bed to look out and sees the footprints again. Uh, the footprints, she hears the footprints outside the door. Instead of opening the bedroom door this time, she does lock it. And she gets back into bed and pulls the covers over her. And we get this like jump scare where Lewis's corpse pops up and pulls her down under the bed, under the covers of the bed. It's pretty, pretty effective. And of course she wakes up screaming again. Yeah. It's a great jump scare. Yeah. No, it got me. It got me. The next morning phone call wakes her up. It's clay. He's being persistent, I guess, because he is, he is a cop. He has to be. Uh, And he's like, um, I don't know what, you, what you're talking about this business trip for because I called his office and his secretary said she had no idea about any business trip. And I think something fishy's going on here. And this is when he asks her, like, what car did he take? And she's like, uh, uh, what car did he take? He took his car. Can I just say, I have a note here that says, because I think the actual line he says is something strange is going on. I wanted him to say something fishy is going on because he's in the lake. I See, did I I think I added something fishy is going on. See, see I should be a screenwriter. I think he did say something <laughs> odd is going on because, yeah, I, I put something fishy's going on because he is in the lake. There you go. Ding, ding, ding. So now they realize that the car is still parked around the side of the road. So they go and get it, but they cannot open it because the keys must still be on Lewis because, of course, they are. And these idiots do not have spare keys to their car. Like what fucking car owner does not have a spare set of keys to their car? I can actually say my car doesn't because I bought it used and they didn't have the second set. So, <laughs> well, you know what? If someone ever kills you and your 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 car's locked, they're gonna have to go dig your body out of the goddamn river. To That's get right. Keys. See, I'm here to make it as complicated as possible. So, well, well, yeah. So their their plan is again. What the fuck? What the fuck? Their plan is, or it's not their plan. It's Frankie's plan. This wife, she's a fucking mess. She doesn't know what's going on. His plan is. Immediately, he's like, oh, I have to go get the keys. I'm going to have to dive down there and get the keys. So instead of just leaving the car and like being like, okay, we can come up with some reason why the car is still here. Maybe we don't know. We don't know why. It's just tell. He's going to go dive back into the pond or into this lake, go down, find the corpse, like, and then get the keys from it. It's stupid. It's stupid. Like, why wouldn't, like... In the grand scheme of it all, why wouldn't she just call the police and say, hey, I just saw Lewis's car parked around the corner and he's not in it. I can't get a hold of him. Like something suspicious is going on. That makes more sense than going through this elaborate scheme of getting the keys, coming back, taking the car, driving across town, going to the lake, dumping it. It's too convoluted. Yeah. Simple. Call call the police. Talk to somebody else besides clay and be like uh yeah i found my husband's car parked around the- uh, clay knows this because i've told clay he was supposed to be on a bit uh, yeah but whatever they don't do it instead uh frankie does drive to the pond and he canoes back out to the spot i want like he goes to the exact spot where he dumped the body dives in and goes down and finds the finds the body gets the keys and it's it's edited in a way that there's this moment when it cuts away back to her there's this moment where it seems like the the corpse grabbed him as he's getting the keys and then it immediately cuts to sarah at home 
It's all very elaborate. It's it's well done. Like the shots under the water are really well done. The cinematography is great, but they do a really good job of like tricking you into thinking you saw something that you really didn't. Because like the second time I watched, I'm like, oh okay, yeah. And I definitely want to give props to the filmmakers of this because even if you're not a fan of this movie, you have to kind of marvel at the ambition that they had making this movie because there are so many things happening here that as low budget filmmakers, you don't do this stuff. You don't have underwater scenes. You don't have a plethora of nighttime scenes. You don't use animals. You don't use children. You don't have all of this. And this movie tackles all of it head on. Yes. Yes. I was thinking the same thing. It really does. I mean, it adds obviously a lot to the production value of the film. And and again, it goes back to these filmmakers being pretty, pretty concise, pretty meticulous with the constructions of the stories. You can tell, yeah, working with animals as we get to the second segment, whew, you know, I mean, definitely some impressive stuff. So we cut to Sarah and she's home alone and she hears someone coming up the stairs again. And because she's had all of these fucking nightmares and it's always turned out to be Lewis, I guess she automatically thinks it's it's Lewis, so she gets a shotgun, and as she, the footprints approach the the door, her bedroom door, she just shoots through it. Again, this woman is not the smartest cookie in the bunch because it ends up being Frankie. Like the door pops open, and we see it's Frankie. There's this elaborate, like slow motion shot of his hand falling, and the keys to the vehicle fall out because he did actually get the keys from the lake, but she shoots him. Without even being like, who's there? Who is he? Who's in? She just shoots through the door. And on top of that, if you go back and you actually look at the footprints that are outside, those are like business shoe footprints. Like they're very pointed on the toe. And I'm just like, what kind of shoes was he wearing to give those footprints outside? I don't know. So what ends up happening is like she screams bloody murder at real at the realization of what she's done. And then it, it cuts to the next morning, police showing up at the house and then going upstairs and finding the fact that not only is Frankie now dead, but now we see that Sarah is hanging from the rafter and she's dead. And, and, and Clay's like, I knew something was fishy with her when I showed up. You know, I, I get it now. You know, the scorned lover, she 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 was going to break it off with him. So she shot him and she killed Lewis and hung herself, the stupid bitch or something. He calls her like a bitch, I think. Yeah. And then he's like, but I can't figure something out. Why is her body covered with this green or this white slime? Yeah, it's an effective shot for sure. So that's your like, dun, dun, dun. It was, was Lewis. Did Lewis really come out of the lake and hang her or did she hang herself? I kind of like the ambiguous ending. It, it It's kind of interesting. It makes you think, you know, do you think it was, do you think Lewis really came and hung her or what, what's the deal here? What's the slime on her? Yeah. I do have to say, it makes me wonder where did the real estate agent get all of this information? Like how did he create this story to share with these new homeowners? <laughs> where did all this come from? He knows every detail right down to like, he knows everything. He knows what they were having for breakfast in the next segment. He knows everything. I don't know. He's your your guess is his mind, but of course the newlywed couple looking at homes are not impressed at all. And they want the, they want to get the hell out of that house. Oh yeah. The woman's like, I don't like it. Yeah. It's like funny. He's like, they're standing there. It cuts when it cuts back to them after the segment ends, he's looking up the beam. He's like, yeah. And it happened right here. 
Oh, I love that beam ceiling. I'm like, why are you? <laughs> yeah, it's not a really good selling point. And the, the, the woman wants to get the hell out of there. Now, I will say this is where I think the movie hasn't aged as well, because as an elder millennial, I don't care if the husband's ghost is walking around. I don't care if her body is still hanging there. If it's a house and I can afford it, I'm taking it. Especially these houses. And it's mentioned several times that these houses are like, they, they, make, the, they make the comment, I'm like, God, this house is gorgeous. I can't believe it's in my price range. So, you know, and, and John Ritter's character makes makes several statements like, well, you know what? If you want a house in your price range in this neighborhood, you're going to have to get something that has some history to it. Buying a house is, is definitely a stressful time. And if you want something nice, yeah, someone died in it, whatever. You know, as long as it wasn't like, I don't know, like I wouldn't want to buy a house where like a whole like family or something was massacred or something. I don't know. Especially like the second segment, the segment we're coming up on, this wouldn't have bothered me. Would it bother you? Like, if you found out this happened in a house, would you be like, oh, I can't live here? Honestly, no, I don't think any of these stories would have prevented me from buying these houses. And honestly, they're kind of like conversation starters to me anyway. I mean, we live in a world now where, you know, people broadcast like history and, you know, people are doing viral videos of like, oh my gosh, my place is haunted. Look at this. And it almost seems like that kind of person would want to buy these kind of houses with a history like that. Yeah. I mean, You'd have something to share when your relatives come over for Thanksgiving. Hey, you're sitting in the spot where, you know, the guy or the guy's daughter blew his head off. I don't know. It's a conversation piece, like you said. This second segment as we transition into it, because they go to the next house, because the wife wants nothing to do with this house, so they go to the next one. It's a much more traditional looking home. It's very nice, though there's a nice wraparound porch. They go in and it just seems perfect to them. Uh, and they both say, this is just what we're looking for. And John Ritter's just a beaming because he thinks this is it. I got him. And he's off to the side. Like they did a good job patching that yeah. up. Like just immediately. Yeah, He's not being, yeah. He, if he really wanted to sell the house, he would kind of keep some of these comments to himself. He's like, do you guys have pets? And they're like, no. And he's like, good. Oh, good. And of course the wife invites the story to happen. Like, why, why do you ask? And he just launches right into the story. He's like, well, yeah, so in this house lived a family. And there was you know, Ron and Linda and their daughter, Jennifer, who loved him more than anything. Well, anything except. And then it launches into the second segment uh, where we see Mr. Fucking Breaking Bad himself, Brian Cranston. Oh, my God. I did not know he was in this, but here he is. In, in in this segment. You know, it's so funny. Whenever you watch a movie or, or a show and you see somebody that's really famous for one particular thing, you kind of like uh, associate them with that. But this is the first thing I remember seeing him in. So anytime I see him, this is the movie I think of. <laughs> You're like, oh, it's the guy from Terror Track. Right. And they're like, who? What, what are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. Well, I was watching it with somebody and they saw him and they're like, oh my God, it's the dad from Malcolm in the Middle. So, I mean, people are going to have different, you know, memories of Brian Cranston because he's a fucking great actor. Let's put that out there. There he can do it. Oh, for yeah. sure. Uh, and he's good in this. Uh, but yeah, so little Jen, he's brushing his teeth. Little His little daughter, Jennifer, comes in and she is excited because she's like, daddy, 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 guess what I found in the backyard? A monkey, a monkey in a little red suit. He's like, oh, honey, are you sure it's a monkey? It could have been a squirrel. And she's like, I'm not stupid, daddy. It was a monkey. Would a squirrel be wearing a red suit? And so like, can we keep him? Can we keep him? He's like being dismissive because who's really going to believe that a monkey is kind of in their backyard, right? Right. 
And I do want to say with this daughter, there's two comments I have with this. Number one, whose daughter is this? Because she looks like neither one of them, like not by a mile, especially the mom. Like there's no way that came out of that mom. And number two, the daughter, in my opinion, for this particular story is perfectly annoying. Yes. Uh, I have that note as well. The actress, yeah, she's annoying as fuck, but she's actually really good at being annoying and you really dislike her you, you kind of want to slap some sense into her because she's so shrill i mean this little girl screams constantly and you just want to slap her but like it's part of like the character you know i mean you can tell that this is a little girl who's spoiled and is used to getting exactly what she wants and now she sees this monkey and her her whole fixation is this monkey she has to have this monkey she's gonna do what she can to get this monkey she's used to being able to cry act like she's mad at her dad to get whatever she wants they're eating breakfast and she does like she goes downstairs to eat breakfast and her parents are down there and she literally said come on come on outside he wants more cereal she drags him outside to the backyard, and indeed, there's a little monkey back there named Bobo. She's named him Bobo. In a little red suit. I love this little monkey. But you can tell right away that this monkey is not having anything to do with the adults, particularly the father, because it sees the father come out and it immediately runs into a tree and it becomes like the consistent trait of this monkey is like it doesn't want anything to do with the parents. It just wants the little girl and she pleads with her dad. Can we please keep him? He's like, no, he probably belongs to somebody because why else would a monkey in a suit be here? But I tell you what, we can keep him until we find the owner. And she's like, Oh, thank you, daddy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You hear that Bobo? You're going to stay with me. And Jennifer and her mother leave for school. And she's so excited to be able to go tell her friends that she has a monkey and we get the first moment where Ron is, you know, drinking his coffee. He he goes to the window, opens up the window, and the monkey like literally jumps out at him and startles him and he spills his coffee all over his white work shirt. And this is like the first little thing that causes Ron to really dislike this monkey. And you can't blame him. Well, you know, he's he's intuitive because you can tell there's definitely a a weird thing with this monkey like i said right away the monkey doesn't want anything to do with the parents and it's all about this little kid so as a you know as a parent i'd be like yeah this is kind of weird and even like he gets home from work later that day and he finds jennifer playing with a monkey and she is just like having a little tea party with this monkey and he go, Ron goes in. It's like, hey, how about a kiss for daddy? And she like runs over and like, like half ass kisses him. Like just like pfft, doesn't even bother really even actually doing it. And runs back down and plays with the the monkey. And he proceeds then to piss her off by telling her that it's not a good idea if they to, for them to keep Bobo. That you know having a monkey in the house is not a good thing. And she like starts screaming. You told me I could keep him. You told me I can keep him. That's really not what he said, but this little girl is being just a little brat. She's a Veruca salt for sure. And then, you know, Bobo get, pretends to get scared and jumps into her arms. She's like, "See, you're scaring him. You're scaring him. How dare you?" And then, of course, Max, the dog, comes in and starts barking at Bobo, and Bobo like takes off jumps up on top of a bookshelf and the dog is like at the bottom of the bookshelf barking at this monkey and this monkey literally takes a statue and drops it on the dog's head yeah very upsetting if uh 
if you don't like watching this kind of stuff it is very upsetting it doesn't kill it doesn't kill the dog the dog's like yelps and takes off but the dad is like i want that monkey out of the house now Oh, and then the mom comes in, Ron, like, like he's the problem. Like, I'm sorry, this little creature just showed up at my house and like injured my dog. What do you think I'm going to do? I'm on his side. Yeah, this mom is kind of worthless too. I mean, she doesn't really do a lot in this segment except, oh, it's just a monkey. That's all. She's very dismissive of, of Ron's, you know, concerns about this monkey. Uh, that at dinner that evening, Jennifer is pouting, and and Ron says, you know, it's not. He, he reiterates, it's not a good idea to have a wild monkey in the house with Max, the dog. And, and Jennifer suggests, well, why don't we put Max outside? Ron is like, no, that's not fair to Max. He's been here longer. See, this is why I couldn't be a parent because my ass would have been like, why don't we put your pasty ass outside? How about that, <laughs> you little pale white girl? Where'd you come from? Yeah, I know she's this girl. Yeah. Poor Max. I mean, how can she be so dismissive of Max so quickly? But she pouts. She goes upstairs. She won't even give her dad a kiss. And as she gets to her room, Bobo fucking climbs through her window. And we get this conversation before bed with Ron and the wife, Linda, where he tells Linda there's something up with that monkey. And he doesn't he doesn't know quite what it is, but he thinks it's evil. And she's like, oh, Ron, it's just a monkey. Well, you keep telling yourself that, bitch, because you're going to find out here real quick. <laughs> right. So he's like, I'm going to go lock up. And he goes into Jennifer's room to kiss her goodnight. <laughs> he pulls the covers over, gives her a kiss. And then this fucking monkey just j- jumps out of the fucking bed, squealing at him. <laughs> oh, screeching. And the daughter's just dead to the bed, sound asleep, like nothing's happening. Yeah, it takes out running out the window. So the next day, Ron comes home from work early and he has a cage and the wife's like oh you're home early and he's like yeah i i've came up with an idea that is going to you know be a cause cause for a truce a compromise and so he goes into the living room and he tells little jennifer that she can keep bobo but he has to stay in this cage and she's like oh what if he doesn't like it and he's like well then he stays outside so you pick She's like, okay. So he carefully like tries to pick Bobo up and put Bobo in this cage. And as he's lowering Bobo into the cage, Bobo like bites the shit out of his hand. And again, he's like, get that fucking monkey out of this house now. (laughs) (laughs) Immediately from, okay, I guess we can make room for him to get the fuck out. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean. I wouldn't you I I don't know just calling animal control or something or like keep saying like they keep saying oh we're going to try to find the owners but they, do they actually like, do anything to find the owners like do you ever see them like put flyers outside like like with the monkey on it saying missing monkey like no, it's it's okay so you want the monkey you want to find its owners but you literally have done nothing to to get this monkey back to its owner whoever that may be I mean, then I like the fact that that night he's like, no, no, he goes into Jenner's room and he literally just grabs fucking Bobo violently and shoves him in that fucking cage as the little girl screaming, daddy, no, daddy, no. And he takes Bobo into the living room and puts Bobo on the table and Max is there growling. Ron is like, oh, good thing for you, Bobo. He's already had his dinner. And he leaves Bobo in the cage next to Max, which... Ends up not being the the smartest idea. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But uh, honestly, this scene is oddly satisfying. 
watching the dog just like growl at this monkey after what the monkey did to him. I'm kind of on the dog side a little bit. Yeah, unfortunately, dropping a statue on the head isn't the worst thing that this monkey is going to do to this dog because the next morning, Ron gets up all refreshed. He's going outside to get his newspaper. He gets his cup of coffee. He sits down in his chair at the dining room table where Max is usually laying. And he's like, hey, Max, good morning. How are you doing? And he reaches down to pet Max. And Max is fucking dead, stabbed multiple times with a kitchen knife that's laying next to this carcass of a dog and we see little monkey footprints and blood leading away from the dog yeah it's pretty upsetting it is because max come on max was there before this fucking monkey ron is upset and he doesn't immediately like tell anybody like okay why answer me this because he he gets a trash bag he puts max in it he's he hides the, the the body okay so you are trying to convince your daughter and your wife that this monkey was evil, right? Right. Or that you shouldn't keep it. Wouldn't the first thing you fucking do is call your wife, call your daughter down there, show them the dead dog, show them the bloody footprints, and be like, this is why we're not fucking keeping that monkey. Instead, he does not mention to, it to them at all. No, he hides it. This is the second time he hides a body has been hidden. So he gets try. Uh, so yeah. So he hides Max's body in the garage, cleans up the mess, and then he finds like Bobo, like screaming at him from the top of the kitchen cabinets. And and Linda comes in and like sees him freaking out, and she uh, or tells Linda to get the hell out of the house, get the hell out of the house. And he calls nine one one. Finally, finally calls nine one one, and they tell him immediately. Well, that's not an issue for nine one one. You need to call animal control. <laughs> worthless just worthless well he didn't you know he should have been like hey this monkey's a homicidal maniac it killed my dog I, I don't think animal control is really necessary bring bring an officer here with a fucking gun we need to get this thing out of here instead he does take it upon himself to go to animal control and he pays this like random guy who looks like he's in the mob <laughs> He pays him. He's like, I'll pay you a hundred bucks if you go get this monkey. And he drives the guy to his house. The guy goes in. He's like, this is going to be easy. And as he's burying Max in the backyard, he goes inside the house because now it's eerily quiet. And he's immediately finds this fucking animal control guy dead on his floor with how many, like a dozen knives that's sticking out of him. Yeah, at least. <sighs> okay. Again, I question some of the decisions made here. <sighs> he, I get it. He, he, he does. He picks up one of the knives off the floor, and it's bloody. And he goes to call nine one one, but he realizes he touched one of the knives, so he decides not to call nine one one, even though there are literally twelve other knives stuck out of this guy that they could take fingerprints from and see that you did not do it. Yeah, I mean the decisions made here are not the smartest. So instead of calling 911 and saying, hey, a monkey, uh, yeah, it sounds terrible. But again, good police forensics are going to realize that this guy was not stabbed by him. But he decides then he's going to drag the body into the garage to hide this animal control guy. This is so stupid. This is so stupid because what motive would he have to bring this pound dispatcher, whatever it is, to his house? I mean, he has no relationship with this person. He doesn't have any vendetta against him. So what what motive would there be for people to say, oh, you definitely killed him? There's not. Yeah, it's not a lot of smart thinking here. So as, as things progress, you can't really 
feel bad for him because so many points throughout this story, a decision could be made that would have prevented what happens from happening. But he goes and gets a shotgun and he goes back inside the house and he's literally like hunting the monkey through his house. And uh, Bobo literally like jumps out off of a bookshelf onto him and is like biting the shit out of him, scratching him. Uh, He's able to get the best of Bobo and throw him to the ground. And he like fires the gun right near the doorway where he looks and he sees Linda and Jennifer are on the porch. Linda's like, what are you doing? And he apologizes. And he's like, just come inside, come inside again. At no moment did this gentleman (laughs) tell his wife, Hey, this monkey killed the dog. It killed this man. He's out in the garage. I mean, instead he thinks it's a better idea to go to the hunting store and buy a bear trap. And when he gets home, Linda is like, Hey, have you seen Max? And he doesn't respond. Uh, instead he tells her to go up to bed and then he goes outside, sets this bear trap with a bunch of fruit loops in the middle of it because we've noticed the monkey likes cereal. That's how, um, we were first introduced to him with Jennifer was feeding him cereal that night. It's storming and raining and he's lying in bed and we hear the trap click very distinctive sound. He goes outside and guess what? It's empty. Um, and then he hears a glass break from inside the house and he goes back in and he goes in his bedroom and he finds that fucking Linda, his wife has had her throat slit wide open by this fucking monkey. Yeah, it's pretty good. And he is freaking out. He barges into Jennifer's room with the shotgun and he is like, where's that fucking monkey? He killed your mother. And he kind of hears a noise in the closet. So he goes into the closet and it's really like, you know, effective. It takes its time where he opens the closet and he's slowly peeking his head into the closet. And all of a sudden this monkey just jumps out. Yeah. There's a really effective uh, zoom in shot with the lightning and the thunder being, you know, the only thing on the soundtrack. And it's really good. Yeah, no, this whole, yeah, this whole thing, again, working with animals has to be hard. And the choreo, the choreography and everything that is done with this monkey is, is absolutely wonderful. Oh, for sure. I mean, I've got five cats. You know when the last time one of these cats listened to me? Never. <laughs> yeah. Never. I don't know how they got these animals to do what they did. Oh, yeah. This monkey just fucking balls out, attacks him. Like he th- drops the gun. The monkey is clawing him, biting him. He's able to like, it's on his back. So he like slams up against uh, the bookshelf and the monkey falls to the floor. He immediately pulls the bookshelf down and it falls onto this monkey. pinning him to the floor even though this monkey is evil as fuck i felt so bad for this little monkey oh he looks so cute here he's so sad he's like and the the big old bookshelf's on top of him like oh no bobo and ron is like demanding his daughter he turns around his daughter has the gun she's like no daddy no she's pointing the gun at him he's like give me the gun now she's like no daddy no give me the fucking gun And all of a sudden we get an exterior shot of the house and we see the gun go off. Jennifer shot her fucking dad. And we go back to the house with the real estate agent and the couple are, their happy chipper demeanor about this house has totally changed. They are terrified. They're horrified by this story. The wife is like, um, what happened to the monkey? And the real estate is like, oh, the monkey's long gone. Don't worry. So she shot her father and he's like, yeah, and she's catatonic. She hasn't said a word since. But yeah, so 
That is segment two. And you know what? I got to say, I it's a standout segment for a lot of reasons. And I do like the fact that it sort of does harken back to some of the more, I would say, memorable segments from different anthology films. Like I remember it just kind of reminded me since we just covered Cat's Eye on our Patreon. Plug the Patreon if you want to hear it. Join Patreon, patreon.com slash dark night of the podcast. But we covered Cat's Eye and Cat's Eye has that segment, kind of the wraparound story that ends up being the third, the, the final segment as well with that little um, troll thing that lives in the wall and the cat. And there's some great like choreography between these two creatures. Um, there's another segment uh, from the early 80s from Nightmares. Did you ever see Nightmares? It's an anthology film with like Emilio Estevez in it. Uh, there's that segment like at the end with the rat that has some good little choreography with this fucking rat. And then you get like something even like um, maybe like a creep show with like cockroaches. Uh, so I, I do like the fact that this kind of harkens back to like this, the animal, like killer animal theme that a lot of more established, well-known anthology films did before. And this one does it really fucking well. Plus, it's a killer monkey. We all like killer monkeys. We had like, mon- remember Monkey Shines? from uh george romero in the 80s uh so it's really cool to see this segment it's it's well done never get bored and for the the second segment it kind of amps up the expectations in terms of how the anthology is going to come to an end because this one's kind of hard to top yeah and it's a frustrating segment but i think it's meant to be frustrating and I think honestly, you know, now that you mentioned it, this isn't the only story that kind of gives me cat's eye vibes. I think the wraparound story with the real estate agent, doesn't it kind of remind you of Quitters Inc.? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You're you you're gonna be forced to do something. And if you don't do what they're telling you to do, there's gonna be dire consequences. Yes, absolutely. Right down to the phone call. Uh, at the end of the film that John Ritter gets with with the son on the phone. Definitely something very similar happens in Cat's Eye. That's a really good acknowledgement there. So this couple is not happy. They get in the car and the husband's like, we just want to see a, a regular house where nothing has happened. And John Ritter's trying to explain, hey, you know, if you want a, if you want a house in your price range, like I said, in this neighborhood, it's going to have some history. So they take him to the light. He takes him to the last house and it's a nice house, beautiful house. The wife, is impressed, but she immediately is like, did someone die in it? He's like, no, nobody died in it. Scout's honor. They go inside and John Ritter gets a phone call from his now very sinister sounding boss. And he's like, did you make the sale yet? It's it's almost time. And, and he's like, no, no, I got till five, right? You told me till five there. I'm with them right now. And I think they're going to, I think they're going to make me an offer on this one. Just, just give me some, just give me some time. But he's getting real nervous. He gets off the phone. And he's super nervous. He wants to show. He's like, hey, did I mention I have a wife and kids? And he wants to show him pictures of the family. And the wife is having none of it. She's like, look, listen, why did the owners move? <laughs> and at this point, I'm sorry, this is her problem. Stop asking these questions. Like, <laughs> maybe the less you know about this place, the better. So it's a you problem now. Exactly. And again, the last segment and particularly this segment would not make me not buy these houses. Yeah, I agree. Because he is 100% right in telling them nothing actually happened in this house, which it did not. But he's like, okay, I guess I should tell you because you're going to find out anyway. He's like, nobody died here. In fact, nothing bad happened here. It's just like the good ones lived here. Uh, I even sold them the house. But they did have something weird happen and it all started with their son, Sean. And one night... He went to a psychiatrist. And now we cut to the third segment 
which I think is called, is it called granny? I think each of these segments have it, have a, uh, have a title. I think like the, yeah, there's, I think it's nightmare Bobo and then come to, come granny. to granny. And then the wraparounds make me an offer. I think come right. to granny. This one is an interesting segment for sure. Uh, totally. It's definitely different than the first two. Uh, it has a dark kind of vibe to it. And it almost reminds me of like, we talked about night shift, uh, Stephen King's night shift. And this, this segment really fucking reminds me of like a short story that came from night shift. Are you talking about the boogeyman? Well, the boogeyman and even something like, um, strawberry. What was that one called? Oh yeah. Uh, I can't remember the title. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about though? Strawberry something something with strawberries uh and the man there's three of them the strawberry one the boogeyman and then the man who loved flowers yeah yeah i think this is a combination of those three stories and it very much has that stephen king's vibe to it and what it is is yeah dr Corey is a psychiatrist and she's at her office getting ready to leave for the evening when her secretary rings her and says there's someone here to see you he does not have an appointment but he says he has to see you desperately and he's not going to leave until he does. So she like, she's like, okay, whatever, let him in. And it, in comes Sean, who is a, a, a teenager looks pretty harmless. And right away he asks her if he, if she has heard of the granny killer and she's like, yeah. And he's like, well, what do you know about the granny? She's like, I, I, I know that he's just he's somebody that is killing women wearing a granny mask. And she's like, well, what do you know about the granny killer? And he says, well, I don't know anything, but I know his victims. I watched them die. And then he asks if she believes in telepathy. And he launches into the fact that he, for the last couple of weeks, has been having visions of the granny killer's victims being killed. And the first one he gets is in the shower. Uh, he kind of talks a little bit about his home life. He lives with his parents. They don't pay much attention to him. They're rich. You know, he, he gets a phone call one morning from Jasmine, who happens to be the first girl he's ever got close to. And she's teasing him on the phone. There's a little bit of sexual innuendos that go back and forth. They're supposed to be going jet skiing. And so she's like, hurry up. When can you be over here? And he says, I got to take a shower first. And he gets in the shower. And this is the first vision that he has of a granny killer victim. And we see it through his vision, a woman being chased into an alleyway where she is then stabbed and repeatedly like he is feeling the stabs like in the shower, he's like grabbing his chest and stomach where this woman's being stabbed. And then she has her throat slit and he grabs his throat. And there's that great shot of the, the soap falling from his grasp and hitting the floor of the shower. Yeah. And this granny killer, creepy, creepy. This could have been a whole feature. Like I want to know about this fucking granny killer because that voice that this granny killer uses it come what's he's come to granny now it is yeah and what a smart move to make the killer talk you know anytime you see one of these like 80s inspired slashers the killer's silent wears a mask does his thing that's it very smart call to have this killer be so vocal don't be frightened it's just granny it's it's unsettling so that's the first vision he has. And he and the doctor asks him, Dr. Corey asks him if, if he's talked to anybody about his visions. And of course, his response is, no, who can I tell? Nobody would believe me. Like, who's going to believe me that I'm having visions? And she's like, well, what about the police? And he says, well, no, they would just think I'm, I'm psycho. And then he cuts to like, I thought, I thought maybe it was just a one and done thing. But a week later, I had another vision. And we cut to him in the pool 
playing Marco Polo with Jasmine. And, you know, they're getting pretty hot and heavy. She takes her top off. They start making out in the swimming pool. And all of a sudden, he starts having a vision of a woman being killed inside of a school, which was very unsettling to me, (laughs) especially as like the janitor is like outside the door, like watching everything and she can't get the key, the right key. But this woman is literally hacked to death with a with a meat cleaver. And the poor janitor just has to watch helplessly. And again, the granny killer is like, don't be scared. It's just granny. But in the as Sean's having this vision, he is like violently reacting. And his reaction is, has caused him to like grab Jasmine by her hair violently. And he's like pushing her in the water. So she doesn't know what's going on. So she literally thinks that he is like trying to harm her. And we learn then like she slaps him and, and takes off. And we learn as he tells Dr. Corey that that's the last he ever heard from Jasmine again. She would not return his calls. And this is really, really good stuff. This scene is only like two minutes long, but in that two minutes, it establishes a really uh, authentic relationship between these two people. You can tell that they like each other. They they trust each other. And, you know, kudos to them for pulling that off because usually when you watch a, a teenage uh, focused slasher story the teenagers usually come across as very boisterous very unlikable you know it's it's really difficult to to navigate that and i think the filmmakers did a really good job making them feel real and authentic and likable and then for that flashback or uh, premonition to happen while this is happening at the same time to go from that trust and that likability to you know her doubting him very quickly it's re- it's handled really well. Yeah, it is. You really get a sense of yes, that he was very smitten with this girl, and she was smitten with him. And but he could not tell her what really happened because she would not return his calls. Uh, and that's the end of it. And he's like, you know, I lost all my friends because basically I had no friends. My friends were her friends, and they all are now with her. Uh, and he says, like, you know, I learned that the the victim that I had the vision of was a teacher at my school. He mentions the fact that they looked everywhere and they could not find her head. Oh, yeah. Her body parts are all spread throughout the entire school. It's really, really disturbing. I would, I'd hope they closed the school for a while and didn't make the kids <laughs> go. Like, give them a week off while you're cleaning up that mess and trying to find this head because all you need is some kid to open his locker and the woman's head fall out. Traumatize. No, them. you know they still went to class. They still went to school. It's just like when you work retail and there's a big snowstorm. You're, you're still coming in, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, the secretary buzzes in suddenly and it kind of startles uh, Dr. Corey. And the secretary is like, I have to leave for the evening because I have my night class, remember? Oh, she's the killer. Yeah. So <laughs> this doctor's like, okay, she's being left with this with this boy. You know, and you know, Sean is just continues to, to spilling his guts to this doctor, you know, saying like he can't sleep anymore because all he does is lie awake at night thinking about who could do something like this what guy would be able to do something like this if it's a guy at all and you know it really gives some really inspired moments of like uh i don't know mystery that i really would like to have seen expanded on i think this i like i said i think this could have made a really interesting feature film exploring this granny killer because we really spoiler we really never find out who it is what their motive is if it's a male if it's a female if it's super we don't know but there's enough to this killer that's painted in this short segment because correct me if I'm wrong, this is the shortest segment by far, I think. I think this clock's in at like 12 minutes. It's pretty short. Um, but in that 12 minute span time, I am 
my interest is thoroughly peaked in this killer. Yeah, they could have easily uh, lengthened this to feature length for sure. Oh, the I mean, everything, the voice, the mask is creepy as fuck. The mask kind of reminds me of a combination of like the mask from curtains mixed with the mask from terror train, like the old man mask from terror train. Oh, Put those two sure. together. You have this mask and this, the voice. Yeah. There's I, I, for a killer. That's literally on screen less than probably a minute when you combine all the mo- very, very intriguing killer. Plus, brutal as fuck yeah like this killer has no qualms hacking people with meat cleavers slitting their throats i mean i want to know more about this fucking granny killer we need a granny killer movie and i have to give uh some props to the filmmakers too because at the very end when it comes time to credit everybody the granny killer is still a question mark in the end credits which is pretty effective (laughs) yeah that's cute that's fun that's fun see i like stuff like that that's fun so you know his parents did start to kind of notice that his grades were slipping, but he could not tell them why uh, they put him on drugs and they helped him for a while until it happened again. And we, we go back to him having a premonition where he's driving and he has a premonition of the granny killer hacking someone to death. And it just happens to be Jasmine. Uh, he gets on the phone and he calls the police and he's pretty aggressive. This this actor has a very distinct voice. Yeah, I think um, here's the thing. I think it's kind of like a, a mixed bag as far as this performance goes, because in the scenes in the office, the, the therapist's office, he's really good because he comes across as perfectly normal, likable, but kind of mysterious and maybe dark. So you're not sure if you can fully trust him. And I think he plays both ends of that really well but then you get to this scene and it's not as strong it feels very forced his voice kind of like uh goes somewhere that's that doesn't feel like him i don't know if you caught that oh no i did i have that trust me i have that note it's 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 a borderline bad performance but i forgive it because yes he is good throughout the rest of the film but yeah i don't know it's almost like you can okay you can totally tell he's acting in this moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. His desperation doesn't come across as genuine at all. He is acting like he is like somebody that's trying to be like uh, assertive. And he, yeah, he does this really weird thing with his voice. And instead of sounding realistic, it it just sounds like it takes you out of the moment. Yeah. Honestly. Like, yes, that's right. He's going to attack. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's really bad. Don't you understand that? There's no time. (laughs) (laughs) so he hangs up and he goes to jasmine's house and like he pulls up and right away you're like fuck because her front door is wide open her alarm's going off oh and the police by the way don't even believe him like this is the thing i don't understand they don't believe him about her being attacked her house alarm is going off aren't you guys like pretty much in sync with each other like hey there's an alarm going off at this house and somebody's reporting a crime (laughs) that's what i was thinking like this alarm's been going off for a while and like nobody's showing up to check on it uh, he gets there, he like well, goes in, and immediately he finds poor Jasmine. Uh, not Oliver, though, just her decapitated head lying on the living room floor. Oh, yeah. And honestly, this scene, I, I know this is just kind of one of those B-horror movies, but this scene, I think, particularly the music, is so strong 
because it the the music is so impactful it makes you feel exactly what he's feeling like you don't want to find out but you need to find out and as he's like kind of going through the house he's finding pieces of her pieces that she could probably live without but pieces nonetheless so it starts with like a hand and then a full arm and and you just know it's getting progressively worse as he goes through and that music just matches it perfectly yeah, there are definitely some inspired musical moments in this in this particular segment. I, I'll, I'll get to one here in, in a minute that I really, really found almost like Italian giallo esque like. But yeah, he finds Jasmine uh, dead, like her head's on the floor, and goes back. We cut back to the doctor's office, and he very sinisterly asks, "Oh, doctor, could I have done it? Could I have blacked out and done it?" And she's like, "Uh, yeah, you're fucked." So she like reaches behind her and gets this you know, letter opener. She's like, I can help you, but it's going to take some time. And then he's like, you know what doc? And okay. I get it. But can you not like say this shit to her? So like creepily, like he, he's acting creepy. I have that exact. I'm going to read it word for word. Okay. You're not actually helping her by being super creepy. (laughs) That is my note. Yeah. No, like you're there for a specific reason, but you're being as creepy as fucking possible. He's like, I'm not really here for therapy, doctor. You know what I'm here for? Because a granny killer is going to strike again and you're the next victim. Like, what else are you supposed to like? It's very much like painting him to be like, I'm here to kill you. Uh, instead of like, hey, doctor, I had a premonition. You're the next pr- victim. Let's get the fuck out of here. This is exactly what Tucker and Dale versus Evil was making fun of when he comes up to yeah. the kids. You guys going to do some camping? <laughs> like, this is yeah. that exact same scenario. Oh yeah. So, I mean, she, she has this letter opener and he literally like, he's, he's like, you hear that doctor, you're the next. And he like gets up and starts like walking towards her. And she very smartly, she like takes the letter open. She, she like swipes him at him. And then she is able to grab him and slam him down on her desk. And she impales him in the gut with this, uh, it's a letter holder thing. It's, it's one of those, like, it's a, it's a square piece of wood with a, like a long nail sticking up. And it's what you, you know, people throw paper on like stick paper on like if you have like receipts or something it's one of those things uh the only other time i've seen it used in a horror movie for like a death is intruder remember intruder the the supermarket slasher where yeah they also did it in um don't look under or don't look in the basement i think is what it was called okay yeah 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 so see these things are quite deadly so stay away from them uh, she takes off like running down the hall and she gets to the elevator and she's pounding on the elevator numbers and the elevator slowly making its way up to the eighth floor. He comes out of her office, you know, holding, he pulls this letter opener out of his stomach, blood goes everywhere. And he's like, Hey doctor, I have something for you. And as he's approaching, he's getting closer and closer. He's like reaching into his jacket to pull something out. Just then the elevator opens to reveal granny with the meat cleaver raised and at that same moment sean pulls out a gun but he drops it and collapses because he's bleeding to death and we cut back and we see the doctor's like shocked face and the granny killer says now be a good girl and come to granny and the meat cleaver goes down and that's it and the sound mixing here uh, the sound mixing is really effective because the the music is swelling as you're waiting for that elevator door to open because it really drags it out. And the moment the the ding happens, the music kind of drops to nothing and allows the the sounds for what's actually happening on screen to to happen. So you get that sound of the elevator doors opening and 
it's just really effective the way that they mix the the sound for this. Yeah, and this is the moment where I also think, like I mentioned, the score uh, sounds almost like Italian Jalloesque is is when she's like running out of her office, and you get these like electronic stingers that start to beat in really really heavily, and it's really effective. Um, because there is, if you think about it, there is sort of maybe some Jalloesque aspects to this particular segment. Not strong, but they're there. They're there. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, so we cut back to the uh, house where these owners are completely over it. They're like, you know what? We're done. We're not signing anything. Let's just, we're done. We're going to go look at a different neighborhood. Well, at that same moment, the agent gets a call from his boss who is like, did you make a sale yet? He's like, no, no, no. They're going to, they're going to sign. Please, please, please. And he's like, well, you, they better because here you go. And he puts the son on the phone and the son, you hear the son goes, please, daddy, make the sale, daddy, please. He's pleading. And the, 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 the two, the couple are like, no, absolutely not. He's like, make me an offer. Make me an offer. You got to buy a house from someone. Why don't you buy it from me? And they're like, no, absolutely not. We're leaving. And the wife starts heading towards the door. And as the husband's following her fucking John Ritter of all people takes the pen and shoves it in the fucking husband's throat pulls it out and like effective stream of blood starts squirting everywhere. The wife screams. She's trying to get out the door and John Ritter proceeds to brutally stab the hell out of this guy in the back with this pen while he's talking about interest rates being really low. So they need to make, <laughs> make an yeah, offer. I mean, I think you just ruined your, your, your chance for a sale buddy. Uh, but that's not it. The, the wife gets out of the, uh, the house and she's screaming and she she sees the neighbors out mowing his lawn. So she's going to run up to him for help. But then she actually sees what he's doing. And he has this cat <laughs> buried its head sticking out of the ground. And he's proceeds to run the cat's head over with a lawnmower. It, it doesn't show anything. You hear the cat, like the sound effects of it, which is pretty disturbing. Yeah. It, it's, it's a little unsettling. It's unsettling, but also slightly humorous in a very dark way because of the way that number one, you can tell it's it's not a cat, like it's a it's a stuffed animal or something like that, and just the way the music is playing, very bumbling, very almost Looney Tunes esque. So you're not meant to totally take it seriously. So when it does happen, you don't feel uh, as impacted as say when the dog from Bobo dies. Yeah, no, it's very silly because yeah, you can totally tell it's a fake cat. And you know, we just did, we covered Sleepaway Camp three <laughs> a couple episodes ago, and it has the exact same death with the poor camp owner um, Lily, who gets her head run over by a lawnmower with Angela. So a lot, all these connections to films we recently covered, it's kind of interesting. But yeah, so she gets in the car, and the and John Ritter's character comes running out with the pen. He's like, "Sign, make me an offer." Just then, Bobo, Bobo jumps on the windshield. So Bobo's alive. He did not crush to death under that uh, bookshelf. Immediately, like as she's starts the car, all hell starts to break loose in this neighborhood. I mean. People are being chased and shot in the street. This old woman uh, is wheeling her trash out with a leg sticking out of it. I mean, it's explosions are happening. Uh, the, all hell is breaking loose in this neighborhood as she drives away. And we get this nice aerial shot as she's driving away, this aerial pull away shot of all this chaos happening as she's trying to leave this neighborhood. We see some guy now has Bobo attacking him. Yeah. Cars are exploding. People are being hit by cars. It's, what a way to end a, a segment. It's awesome. It really is just awesome. And this is why I forgive all of the moments earlier where the police are completely useless. 
Because if this is how the neighborhood normally is, I wouldn't respond to this shit either. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it. It's fun. It's, it's uh, I guess, my only gripe, and it's a minor gripe, I, you know, I, I have to look at it in, in perspective here, is I do sort of feel like the comedic tone that this particular segment ends on is not in line with the other segments, which are all very serious, particularly the first and the third one. Even the second one is is quite dark in its tone, although we're talking about a killer animal. I feel like this one goes out almost on a cartoonish level that doesn't necessarily fit the actual stories in this particular anthology film. I still enjoy I still enjoy the f- hell out of it. You're right. I think the the stories themselves are horror with doses of black humor, whereas the wraparound story is black humor with a dose of horror. So I, I definitely understand what you're saying there. But no, I, I love I love it. It's it's fun. But yeah, yeah, overall, I mean, you are right. Probably one of the better anthology films to come out in the last, well, 20 some years now. And I'm wondering, I really wonder like why isn't this film more well known? Why do you think? Because it's it's competently made. The segments are are all very strong. I mean, if I had to rate them like in order of like the ones I, the, that I think are best, I would say it would go the backwards order. I would say three, two, one, three being my favorite, two being my second favorite, one being my least favorite. But they're all strong. But like, I wonder, it has John Ritter, it has Brian Cranston. You would think like with him being so popular now that this film maybe would have had a resurgence. I just wonder what it is that this film doesn't get the attention that it probably deserves because I'd never, ever see it mentioned. Never, ever. I don't know. I mean, I think anthology films are a little bit harder to market because you're not just selling one thing, you're selling like three or four. And especially, you know, look back at like Trick or Treat. Trick or Treat was not actually like a runaway success like people uh, remember it being. It kind of had like a cult following over the years. It wasn't like this blowout breakout hit. I mean, I think it was even shelved for a while because of what was going on with Warner Brothers at the time. So yeah, I I just, I don't know what uh, prevented this from being uh, more appreciated, more seen um, by the people. I I have no idea. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, I think Trick or Treat also did not really market itself as an anthology film. I think I'm trying to remember. I love trick or treat. Fucking love it. We will be covering it at some point. It's, it's a great film, but it wasn't really marketed as an anthology film. Like you could watch the trailer to trick or treat and not know that it was an anthology film. Right. Yeah. It looks like a Halloween movie. That's really all it looks like. Where something like this, there's no way you could cut a trailer to this and not make it not look like an anthology film. Right. But still as an anthology film, it's, it's, it's strong. It is, it's very strong and it needs more attention. So here we are 23 years after the fact, John Ritter's passed away, rest in peace. This needs more eyes on it, guys. Definitely. Definitely. So I'm glad that you picked it. I'm glad we got to discuss it. I'm glad I got to watch it again. I still am intrigued by that fucking granny killer. Good grief. I need more of that broad. You know, it's funny. I haven't seen this in probably close to 20 years um, before rewatching it for this. And I can I could hear that voice and see that mask distinctly, like to the wrinkle. And it's just it's such a powerful image. And it's only like on screen, like you said, for barely a minute, I think. 
but it's it's that strong. Uh, you want yeah, that's so funny. You want to know something funny that since I watched this, you know, I've been randomly saying to myself, literally, I'll be like cooking or cutting up something for dinner. I'll be like, "Come to Granny." <laughs> I it just, because it's it's so unique, and it, I just yes, I need more of this killer. I uh, th- that's why I think the third segment is so freaking great. I think it's the best one of the, of the batch, even though, like I said, it's the shortest one, uh, just because it gives you this villain that is so unique and so mysterious. And you just, it just leaves you absolutely wanting to know more about this, the lore of this particular killer. Absolutely love it. Yeah. But that is, that is terror track guys. Let us know your thoughts on the film. Um, and we got to thank, we got to thank, we got to thank Chris for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Before we go, before we cut loose, let our listeners know like where they may be able to like find you on social media in, in order to be able to f- you know follow your your future uh projects and your past projects. Where can they get your books if they're interested in reading them guys? If you're fans of um RL Stein, uh Goosebumps, you will love his 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 books, trust me. And I don't know if you wanted me to mention this or not, Chris, but you um you did let me read one of your stories, your newer stories, the parachute. Yeah. I'm not spoiling it for anybody, but I got to say, I dug it quite a bit. We talk about like, you talk about like the creep show. You know, I, I, I was thinking my whole time when I was reading it, first of all, wonderfully written, great characters. Some of the descriptions of, of the deaths. Thank you. I, I will say like what really pleased me about the, the story is that it very much it's young kids, it's middle schoolers. And it, it kind of gives you that old school, like I'm a big fan of like the Goonies and Stand By Me. I love that kind of nostalgia where you have a group of young friends doing something, whether it's over the course of a day or a course of a week or whatever it is. I just love the nostalgia and you create a really cool, unique group of friends that seem realistic. But also as you're reading it, you think, oh, okay, is this geared towards middle schoolers? But then some of the the deaths the descriptions of the deaths are very graphic <laughs> and so i really liked that aspect because some writers would be really afraid to go there in such gory detail with kids being the victims but you did not shy away from it at all and again i want to say i got creep show not necessarily creep show 1 vibes from it but creep show 2 vibes with like the raft i'm so glad you said that that was kind of my inspiration for writing it um, the idea uh, of using like a, a play parachute, you know, like from the kindergarten days, uh, I always wanted to write something about that. It was just very nostalgic. It's an image and sound. You know, we can he- all hear that flapping of the parachute uh, just from our memory. And I always wanted to write something about it, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. You know, when you're talking about a play parachute, you're not going to have adults playing with this thing. You're going to think of kids playing with it. And so with that in mind, you just have to treat them as people. You know, regardless of age, they're people first. And if this is their thing, you know, playing with a parachute, follow them, follow the whole journey, you know, regardless of what happens. And so I think we're kind of entering a, a an age of, of dark fiction where kids are no longer off limits, which is really exciting. Um, there's an author named Aaron Beauregard who just did a, uh, a novel called Playground. And it's very, uh, very much like, like Saw, where this... Uh, this group of kids are invited to uh, a test playground. They get to test all the equipment, you know, see how it is and, you know, rate it and everything. Well, it's actually a death trap. Each different 
equipment in the in the playground is designed to kill them and they have to figure out how to survive it. And so uh, things like that are really just changing the the course for horror and and making things that were normally off off limits or out of boundary. We're allowed to do it now. And as long as I think you do it with the story in mind and with the integrity of the characters in mind, it's not gratuitous. You know, these are real people going through real things. And so as long as you stick to that and you're doing it for that purpose, I think you're able to pull it off. And so I'm hoping that's what came across with that short story. Oh, definitely. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I was grinning the whole time I was reading it, particularly when we got to the gooey parts. But yeah, so I just wanted to say, Excellent job. It definitely makes me look forward to what you have in store. Hopefully it is. Is there like a plan for it to be part of like an anthology you're working on maybe or? Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, put a pause on the the middle grade stuff that I've been writing and I'll be working on a short story collection um, geared for adults. It does have a few stories uh, pertaining to kids, but every story is written with the, with adults in mind. Um, but if you want to read any of my other stuff, you can find Twisted Books to Leave You Shook on Amazon. There, uh, there are paperback and ebook editions that you can purchase. Um, it's also on Kindle Unlimited. So if you have that, you can read them for free. Um, if you want to follow me on Instagram, TikTok, uh, my user is at Chris has a story. And yeah, so if you follow me there, I'll have updates as they come. Awesome. 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 Well, Chris, it was a joy to talk this film with you. I'm glad you picked it. I'm glad you were able to come on. We thank you listeners. You know, we have a few more weeks to make it without, without Roger. So stay tuned for what I have in store with you. This trifecta of Chris's has officially come to an end. So, so sad, so sad. So who will, what name will pop up next week? We, we shall see. But with that, guys, again, thank you. Thank you for listening. Remember, share the podcast. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We're, we're getting up there. We're, we're excited to see that. So especially since Roger's gone, you know, the podcast is like 50 times better without him here. So hit that five-star button. Just kidding. All right, guys. Good night. Good night. Good night.